Welcome to Alternative Fund Insight, exploring the trends and meeting the personalities driving hedge funds and private markets. My name is Will Wainwright, and this week I am joined by Carson Block, the activist short seller and founder of Muddy Waters. Welcome to the episode. This week we are getting Carson Block's views on the UK's post-Brexit review of short-selling regulation, why he thinks Europe was wrong to intervene after the crisis, and the outlook for his strategy in 2023. Before we begin, a reminder about AFI membership. Access a new world of enhanced alternative investment news, research and business intelligence tools. Please head to alternativefundinsight.com slash membership to discover more and read the interview accompanying this episode. Carson, thank you very much for joining me on AFI today. Can we start with an update on Muddy Waters, the firm today, your approach, size, team, that kind of thing? Sure. So... We are still a manager of private funds or hedge funds, um, and we are obviously what they call activist short sellers. And we, uh, yeah, I mean, right now our AUM in total is probably about 230 million. Um, and um, our team, we tend to have in total, you know, give or take 10 people. Um, you know, most of whom are in the uh, the front of the house um, on the research side, and then also we have an operations and uh, compliance legal and support uh, portion as well. Let's start with the the news that a lot of people are talking about in London at the moment: the UK consultation on short selling. And I know that you have added your contribution to this debate. So how should regulators look at short selling? Sure. So this this particular consultation, um, I mean, there, there are important aspects of short selling that are not included in the call for evidence here. Um, so this is dealing with really what's an implementation rule under the EU's framework. So it's called the short selling rule, SSR. Mm-hmm. And uh, the SSR is what provides that framework that um, requires the holders of short positions to begin reporting to, in a non-public manner, to begin reporting to um, the regulator when they're short 10 basis points of the outstanding shares of a company. And then every mm-hmm. you know 10 basis points um, increase, you have to report again. And at 50 basis points of the outstanding, it becomes public reporting. Sure. And, you know, I I don't like the private reporting, um, you know, just because it's one more, um, it's, it's just one more set of you know, things that you have to remember. And for smaller asset managers, um, you know, it's hard to build a system that automates this. It's, so it's very manual. But... Um, you know, the bigger issue to me is the public reporting. And yeah. there's there's no question in my mind that um, this public disclosure requirement has discouraged short selling um, and has also made things, has also made pricing less efficient um, and trading and has distorted trading. So 
I will I'll explain that. Um, so basically, you know the I mean it's the the background of the SSR was in the po post GFC period. You know all the major markets were enacting reforms uh, that were designed to pre prevent the next sort of financial crisis from happening and. There was absolutely no evidence that short selling contributed to um, global financial crisis. I mean, it actually, it's academic work after the fact showed that markets that imposed short selling bans, um, it was actually deleterious for liquidity and didn't do anything to um, stop the declines in stock prices. So when the EU targeted um, short selling and with this disclosure requirement, it was really a solution in search of a problem. But, you know, I think the EU, they tend to be very, you know, in this in this respect. I mean, look, I, it's not for me to comment overall on, well, on whether Brexit makes sense, but, you know, I am sympathetic with the perception that the EU is frequently engaged in regulatory overreach. And, um, you know, the when they promulgate these new rules and enact all these laws, there are unintended consequences. But, at least in this case, this was, you know, the consequence of this is that um, firms that would take short positions that are publicly disclosed, well, suddenly the information becomes asymmetrical in that companies frequently do not speak to them or do not engage with them as they do um, their, you know, the firms that they think are interested in being long the stock or are long the stock. So... Mm -hmm. You know the the idea that oh this per, this promotes transparency. Well, it's actually it, it promotes the opposite. So selective disclosure by companies is one of the results. Um, there's also I mean look there's always been a sensitivity um, among allocators um, to the short side and um, it, because there's just a popular there always been these popular misconceptions or misperceptions about short sellers and the thought that you know we drive companies out of business. So mm. by forcing managers to disclose publicly, um, you know, I think you've also decreased manager appetite to take single name short positions uh, for that reason, because they don't want to be disclosed publicly because that will make allocators more reluctance to allocate to them. So yeah. you have, so you have that, that set of discouragement. Now, when it comes to distortion of trading, this, um, especially for firms like that are short activists or that are high profile, this is what it does to us. So if we know that we're going to be publicly disclosed at once we cross 50 basis points of the outstanding. Mm -hmm. So we build our position in a given European name the way we normally do, trade into it kind of gradually. But then we stop on a given day at 49.5 or whatever basis points of the outstanding. So the next day is our day that we're going to cross. And we usually want to get a much bigger position than 50 basis points. So we know that we have to go pedal to the metal the next day. So here mm -hmm. we are. We start at 49 spot five, for example, and floor it. And we try to get as big as we can as quickly as we can because we have one to, you know, one to two days of trading, depending on the market and the lag and them reporting these positions um, to, to get it done. And you know, who wins from that? I mean, we don't win because we're getting lower entry prices. If you're yeah. of the view that, you know, short selling is dangerous and damaging long holders interest, well, that doesn't help long holders. Um, so really nobody wins from that, that distortion. 
Now, one of the other things that I do in this letter, and um, I think it's important to, you know, Elon Musk, I think, personifies a lot of the, the world's attitude towards short sellers when he, um, well, he exemplified it when he tweeted out a few years ago, um, you're not allowed to sell a car you don't own. You're not allowed to sell a house you don't own. You know, why are you allowed to sell stock you don't own? Mm. That sounds rational. But his examples, um, so the answer to why you're allowed, why short selling is allowed, is it has to do with property rights, but property rights of the long holder. I'm going to get a little bit theoretical here for a second, but it's hopefully not, sure. you know, too, doesn't seem too ivory tower. When you look at, when we think about property rights, um, they often exist with respect to what the highest and best uses of a given or use of a given type of property or asset are. So the highest and best use of a home is to be lived in. The highest and best use of a car is to be driven. Okay. So while you, you may not sell a car you don't own generally, although there's irony coming from Elon Musk because Tesla's constantly selling these features that don't exist um, in the form of prepayments. I mean, that is actually a form of short selling, but put that to the side. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to rent out or lend out your car to somebody who will use it in accordance with its highest and best use to be driven. So that's why there are car rental companies. That's why your friends come and stay with you and you let them borrow the car. You're permitted to do that as the owner of the asset, to lend it out for its highest and best use. The same is true of a home. You may rent it out to people who are going to live in it. Now, what's the highest and best use of a security? It's to be sold. Like, When does it realize the most value for the owner of, a, of the security? Upon sale. Sure, holding it, you can receive interest payments or dividend streams. But those usually pale in comparison to the consideration that you get when you sell it. So mm. the highest and best use of this asset is to be sold. When it's sitting in an account, it's not being used according to its highest and best use. So this market exists for long holders to lend it out and make money on lending it out. And yep. when you look at it from the long holder perspective, look, if you're right and the short seller's wrong, I mean, how sweet is that? Your asset is going to appreciate and you're going to collect rent from the dumb guy here who lost out on the trade. Now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's say the short seller's right and you're wrong. Okay, You lose what you lose, but the loss will be mitigated by the rent that you've collected on lending that out. Now, to the notion that, oh yeah, but if you lend it out, then the guy's going to, the short's going to destroy the stock. And come on, like that. So when stocks crater, I mean, the overwhelming majority of sales is by long holders. It's not by short sellers. There's no evidence to the contrary that short selling makes up a substantial portion of that volume, you know, in a developed market. So, um, you know, and yeah, and, and that's, that's part, part of what makes um, short selling so, um, so hard. And, um, you know, ju just to just to pick up on your point there, you know, could you explain the difference between having a short in Europe and having a short in the US? So, you know, in Europe, you have to declare that 0.5% position. Mm -hmm. How does that affect things? And what about the short squeeze element? Yeah, well, that's actually, so uh, that's a, yeah, that's an excellent question. So there's actually another distortion of trading that can occur with this public disclosure. And you saw it when uh, Melvin Capital went through the GameStop 
um, mm. situation. Now, Melvin's GameStop position would not have been public, but for Melvin owning a significant number of put options on it. And so they had to file a 13D that showed the ownership of the put options. And so GameStop, look, there were a lot of technical factors here that Melvin didn't read that that would have told, you know, that that indicated it was so it was potentially subject to a significant squeeze. But putting that to the side, the the 13D somehow did make clear that Melvin was short GameStop in size. I'm not sure like what other information entered the marketplace around then. But mm. basically, once GameStop started squeezing, and everybody knows this is a big Melvin position, and you can basically you know figure out what this is doing to Melvin's balance sheet because Melvin also files these forms ADV every year that talk about its assets under management. Um, then you start to think, uh-oh, these guys might be going out of business. They might have to liquidate stuff. So what we saw in Europe, positions where Melvin was publicly disclosed, there were little squeezes there. So there were attempts mm. clearly to, you know, to try to try to trade ahead of of Melvin or trade take the other side and maybe even catalyze a squeeze there. So those were distortions of trading once again. Yeah, and that's not what the regulation was brought in to do. Supposedly not. I mean, I look. I think a lot of the continental Europeans genuinely. I mean, I know they just genuinely, viscerally dislike short selling, and so I suspect that a number of the people involved in promulgation of this rule, when they said this promotes transparency, it was just lip service to really, you know, this was promulgated in service of their misguided preconceived notions about short selling that it's somehow deleterious to markets. And, you know, the, the other point, I mean, I talked about fundamentally why short selling exists, but look, the research, okay, maybe I'll put it more pragmatically or more practically than the research. By having short selling, you enable long buying. Because if you're, you know, with, with long short funds, um, they will buy, they will generally be long more than 100% of their capital because they can also short and try to hedge out beta. So the way I put it in very simple, um, you know, very simple example is let's say you as a fund manager or, you know, a sophisticated investor, you really like Ford as an automaker and you, you know, you want to load up on it. But look, you're concerned that there are macro factors that are beyond your control and that might impact the auto industry in general. So you're going to say, okay, you know, what'll give me a little bit more courage to be big and forward is I'm going to short uh, some of the auto, some of the other automakers um, to hedge out part of the beta. So short, you know, Volkswagen, Stellantis, whatever the things, you know, by the way, I don't mm -hmm. have a view on any of these companies. I'm just using them for sake of an example. So that mm -hmm. enables more long buying. But then also think about situation in times of market dislocations when you really want that price stability and the floor. Well, the buyers of last resort are the short sellers who are going to cover. And, um, you know, it makes it hard to convince long-oriented investors to go and try to catch a falling knife when there seem to be no bids in the market. But short sellers are the natural bids in terms of, in times of dislocation. So that's important too. And, and this is what the academic research shows is, that contributes to liquidity in the markets and 
again, it was not by allowing short selling during the GFC in certain markets or in certain names and not in others. We had good apples to apples comparisons showing that in markets in which there was there were short selling bans, the liquidity uh, dried up more and there was no positive impact to price stability from those bans. So, um, you know, net net, it's beneficial. Points on um, distortion, I guess, essentially, that distortion gets in the way of the, you know, the price discovery of liquidity. And it's interesting in the UK, because there's a big debate at the moment about companies moving their listings from here to New York, because of the uh, deep capital markets, shares tend to trade at a discount here compared to in the US. And do you think this regulatory framework is part of the picture that is holding the UK and, and Europe back? Well, I'm not an expert on the factors that um, are in the, that basically cause, say, ARM to choose the US or what the underlying causes are. I mean, certainly technology investors geographically tend to be clustered in the US and um, a lot of them have the attitude that, yeah, I don't want to have to be up early in the morning or late at night to trade overseas. So I think when it comes to you know, technology, that's that's a longer term um, issue where you need to get investors in Europe who are you need to get some some investors who are perceived as savvy in technology investments based in London. Um, and initially, they'd be mostly allocating to the U.S. But I mean, if you can like if you can make it more attractive to relocate some of that talent in the U.K. Um, over time, presumably, you could build up. Um, more of a technology investment ecosystem in the UK. But outside of technology, um, you know, which is, I think, specific sector here, specific to North America in terms of its uh, strength in the investing side, um, you want liquidity. Um, and as I said, this, is, this framework is, is not, it's an anti-liquidity type framework. Um, and I don't look, I don't believe in unfettered capitalism in the markets. I mean, you see what happens when, you know, there's like there's underregulation, but you know, overregulation is, you know, chokes off the liquidity, chokes off interest. And yeah, and the EU definitely tends to overregulate in general. And they really have in the capital markets. And getting back to what I was saying about the over so the overarching framework, um, you know, for the capital markets in the EU is this market abuse regulation, which is really called MAR, which is actually a law. Um, this kind of speaks poorly of the Europeans that they, you know, in terms of naming conventions, they can't even tell the difference. Um, but the but the thing there is when you read MAR, you know, especially portions of it that are relevant to short selling and activist short selling, I mean, there there's, there's a lot, I mean, it's the the statute is very vague at times. I mean, they'll, you know, there are requirements for research that it be precise and, and, uh, and unbiased. And, you know, well, what do these things mean? There are, there are no standards there. And, you know, so that law, um, in the U.S., we have a constitutional principle called void for vagueness. And I'm a former attorney. And so as I've read Mar, I'm just I'm like, yeah. This is too vague. Like that would be unenforceable. That would be unenforceable. So it's very poorly. The overall framework is very poorly written, and there are parts that con that contradict each other. So if you're operating under that regulatory or that legal framework, 
that's not a positive for your capital markets. Um, so I think, yeah. you know, look, the in the U.S., there's also a tendency, um, you know, w- one of the one of the things that I think would make capital markets more dynamic. And every now and then you hear policymakers say this publicly is that you need you need more you need deconsolidation of the asset management industry. And since the global financial crisis, I mean, sub- substantial proportion of third-party investments are concentrated in a very small number of managers. And look, there was, I mean, big part of that is because allocators realized, you know, that they, you know, I mean, it's, you don't get fired for hiring IBM, right? The old adage is true in the investment industry. But the thing is, there's also, as, you know, as regulators are perpetually trying to fight the last war and they'll look at these really, you know, they'll look at glaring examples of, misbehavior that could very well be the exception to the rule and promulgate all these rules and regulations, it just makes it so much more expensive and burdensome being a small asset manager. And so if you get back to this short selling regulation framework, you know, years ago when we, um, you know, and we, we inadvertently missed a non-public filing threshold, like we reduced, we were, you know, what a non-public, uh, you know, just level short. I mean, we were short maybe 30 basis points of something. And we we took it off. Actually, we did this ahead of the Brexit vote. So this was in 2016. And we, and then after Brexit, we took it back up to like 30 basis points. And our COO at the time realized after the fact, um, one day he's like, oh God, you know what? We forgot to file that we went from 30 down to you know, zero and back up to 30. Um, and so we pinged our lawyers in that jurisdiction and like, Hey, we, you know, we need to do this. You know, we need to make this up. This was, you know, this was a good faith. It was a mistake. We're a small firm, you know, based in America, just like juggling lots of balls in the back office at any time. Um, and so we asked counsel, well, let's say, let's say the regulator is, you know, is, is upset about this. I mean, what's, what's the penalty here? And literally the penalty under Mar. The maximum penalty is 100 million euro. Like there's, wow. there's nothing specified for like that type of, you know, I'm sorry, I made a mistake type of violation. And I mean, that's like, really, that's burdensome. That's scary. Yeah. And that is not conducive to creating a more, um, you know, a, a more diversified, um, innovative asset management industry. Um, you know, when you're, you know, when you're basically pointing a cannon at, <laughs> at managers and saying, in theory, you know, like screwing up a paperwork filing could cost you a hundred million euro. Like, yeah, you know, what yeah. small fund manager really is equipped to deal with that? Okay. Well, let's move on from the regulatory aspect to short selling in general. It's been quite a start to the year. I um, interviewed Jim Chanos recently, who said um, we are in a golden age for fraud. There are lots of opportunities to um, expose problem companies. Um, The activist short selling approach that you take has been in the headlines with the um, Hindenburg and Adani situation. So what do you make of the the landscape at the moment for your strategy? Well, it's um, so, yeah. I mean, in terms of what, you know, uh, what, I, what I like to point out as a corollary to what Jim says is the golden age of fraud is that, you know, fraud is really maybe 20 to 25% of what we do at Muddy Waters in terms of 
will sh you know shorting companies for fraud. Most of our shorts, activist shorts, are companies that are doing things that are legal, but violate the spirit of the law, but not the letter of the law. Okay. And really, I feel like that's emblematic of the the big problem that what, that liberal democracies have in general, and why people have lost faith in our institutions. It's because you can violate the spirit of the law in ways that almost make it laughable without violating the letter of the law. And, you know, look, that dovetails also with the discussion we were just having about um, over-legislating and over-regulating because basically you just, you know, you're, you're playing whack-a-mole and you're just driving up costs. But at the end of the day, those with the money to hire the right lawyers, those lawyers are almost always able to outthink the lawyers who draft the legislation and regulations. And, yeah. you know, you just have basically a very expensive tax on the system and people doing things that are non-economic. But at the end of the day, you violate, you're still able to violate the spirit of the law if you have enough resources. So that's a lot of what we do. And, you know, in, in theory, you know, you could say, well, um, the market peaked in, uh, the market peaked in 2021. Um, a lot of the, and when we look at, when we look at last year, um, the alpha generated by activist short selling was not great. So, um, you know, we have, we have one fund that um, includes names from uh, a number of activist short sellers. And, you know, we run these positions typically for, you know, you know at least several months per position. And we hedge mm -hmm. them dollar for dollar um, so that we run market neutral. And, um, you know, we saw, we saw last year that there was generally, you know, a decent bit less alpha than there historically had been. Um, so that was kind of a funny transitional year for activist short selling. But at the same time, people were looking at the S&P and saying to me, wow, you guys must be shooting the lights out. Like, what a great year for you. So when yeah. you think about the really, really dodgy companies, you know, a lot of them are not S&P 500 companies are not in that market cap. You know, it's usually mid caps on down. And a lot okay. of the air had come out of them in 2021. Now, you can look at that and say, you know, a lot of people say, well, yeah, if the market's correct, then does your does your universe get smaller? You know, because let's say if I want to be, you know, I mean, muddy waters when we're doing activist campaigns. I mean, typically, you know, our bread and butter, you know, company has a market cap you know, two to $5 billion, say. I mean, we generally play in the mid-cap space. Um, so you'd say, well, there are fewer really screwed up companies with that market cap because the market caps have, have shrunk. But the flip side of that is um, investors are more risk averse on the back of losses. And going into 2020, um, what I'd begun saying, and, you know, as we were raising money in 2019, and you know, I was saying that, Every year that I've been in this business of activist short selling, which I started in 2010, the bar for finding stories, for lack of a better word, that long investors care about got higher because with mm. the free money and the QE forever, or QE for you know decade plus anyway, um, investors became anesthetized to risk, and it really became this perverse lie to me culture. So. While the, you know, during that period of time, the bar to find something that investors cared about that could break through that, um, you know, that anesthesia, basically, that bar was higher. 
you got inflation of market caps so that these behaviors that were really egregious and generally in the past had only been confined to the, say, micro cap and, you know, very small cap universe, they were now somewhat pervasive in mid caps. Um, so that was the flip side of that. So, okay, now yeah. we're seeing the reverse. We're seeing that, you know, those mid caps are becoming small caps, et cetera. But, um, but investors are, you know, when they, when they get punched in the face, like investors are more, you know, they're, they're willing to be more attuned to risk, um, on the back end of that. But I would say between 2013 and 2021 on the long side, you really were not in equities, you really were not remunerated for caring about risk. And what are the most interesting sectors and areas that you're looking at at the moment? Well, um, we tend, we generally tend not to be thematic. But um, that said, the the stuff in the green tech space has been pretty fertile. We've made some good money on some companies, uh, st- you know, starting with our, you know, shorting them publicly in 2021 that were just pretenders in terms of green tech and, you know, especially the ones that have been SPACs. But um, then some of the, like the solar companies, I mean, we're publicly short on Sunrun. Um, that one, you know, that one's been a little bit tough. I mean, these are, these are awful businesses, but there's such a, there's such a ridiculous subsidy machine that exists in the West to subsidize what I think are non-economic, not only non-economic businesses, but I think probably, you know, these are poor choices for us and from an energy perspective, but I'm not going to pretend to be a policy expert there. But, um, you know, but there, there's so many grifts in that space. And a lot of these companies that are public, and you can see that insiders just dump lots of stock and they're not, they're not here to save the world. Like they're here to get rich and, um, you know, and kind of get rich on the back of telling, convincing investors that they are here to save the world. So there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad behavior there. It's just, it's tough because there, there is froth in that space. There's always excitement. Everybody wants to, you know, feel good about themselves, you know, so they'll run out and buy a share of Sunrun while they, you know, drive around and, you know, pollute the environment or something. So that, that's a little bit hard. Um, Europe is, Europe is generally interesting uh, because, in addition to those barriers to short selling created by the disclosure requirements, just culturally, people don't speak out a lot. And that's the funny thing about, especially in continental Europe, their hostility to short sell, to activist short selling is mm. that because that creates a vacuum of um, negative information, when somebody does criticize, I mean, it gets picked up and it tends to be really effective. Whereas in the U.S., um, you have people you know, effectively screaming at the top of their lungs every day, you know, writing pieces on Seeking Alpha, like, this is the worst company ever. Yeah. And nobody pays attention to them because it's just, it's quotidian in the U.S. You know, like, yeah, okay, you know, another nobody screaming about a company I don't care about. So that's, so Europe, as a result of the, the culture of not, you know, of not speaking out, um, of just trying to look the other way. Europe is, I mean, there are some massively messed up companies as a result, I mean, especially with all the debt that they've taken on in recent years. So, you you know, if it weren't for the disclosure requirement, um, continental Europe, you know, we'd, we'd find it a lot more interesting. But, um, but yeah, there's, uh, but I think there's just a tremendous amount of dysfunction among uh, 
European companies, especially the ones listed in continental exchanges. So those are the things that, you know, where I'd say it's, it's kind of thematic um, these days. And I mean, look, never, you know, I mean, I've always said China is to stock fraud as Silicon Valley is to technology, but um, you know, it's tough shorting those because that seems like there's a lot of manipulation of um, U S listed China stocks, Hong Kong listed China stocks. So you have to be careful there, but I mean, if you really want to, you know, if you're, if you say to yourself, well, I want to go find something that's a fraud and short it, that's where I'd start looking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, timing is, is super important, I guess. Um, there specifically, it, it might take a catalyst to, to get some of those situations actually moving. Yeah. Well, in general, I mean, short selling, so traditional short selling where you're not talking about it, it's not an absolute return strategy. You don't, you don't go, you don't put on short risk because you're uh, thinking that it's a great way to make money. Um, I mean, the way that Jim used to explain it, uh, I don't know if whether he still does use, you know, use this um, uh, analogy, but or metaphor. But he he's, he said he's in the insurance business, basically. So his clients are long the world. You know, they're large allocators, and you know, you get over a long period of time, if you have a short book, you know, your expected, you know, your realized return should equal your expected return. You get where you're going to go, but you do it with less volatility. And that obviously mm. can be very, you know, really important for pension funds and, uh, and insurance companies. So um, any any sort of allocator that has, that has liabilities, you'd want to reduce volatility. So that's what traditional short selling ha- has been for a few decades. Um, it's been a hedge. Um, but, at, and so basically you're just trying to, you know, you hope in, in years when the market goes up, you're just trying to lose, you know, a few hundred basis points less than the market gained. And, you know, you traditionally uh, those managers get paid at least in part on alpha, if not entirely on the alpha they generate. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of activist short selling, yeah, I mean, you're taking companies where typically the, the, company significantly manipulates the information that it presents to the market. Um, Sometimes it's information that it presents to its customers, but there's almost always uh, pretty significant, if not outright egregious manipulation of information, often legal, as I said before. And so as an activist short seller, your job is to explain, this is what they're doing to make things look better. You know, we reality is a lot worse and you know therefore you know i mean the way we view it almost everything that we write about or we talk about is backward looking so we're not in the business of trying to predict the future for the most part um we think you know it's it's fair but i mean we we think it's fair to say okay we've shown you that the past is actually a lot less pretty than you probably thought it was so from that, it's reasonable to extrapolate that the future is not going to be as nice as you're expecting it to be. So that, yeah. that's that's basically the foundation of of short activism. And so with these companies that are information manipulators, yeah, if you don't go out there and expose it, they can keep manipulating the information for a long time and dumping, you know, with insiders dumping their stock. Um, I mean, pre-GFC, it was harder to keep it going for that long. But, you know, with the cheap debt of the QE era, 
um, these companies were able to keep these these things going for a long time. They just borrow money, make acquisitions, muddle the financials, you know, kind of, um, you know, like mess around with what organic growth is because that's a non-GAAP or non-IFRS measure anyway. So the auditors don't, you know, don't audit it and, you know, they'll change the definitions of that and other non gap non-IFRS metrics and hardly anybody catches that they've changed the definitions or can reconcile to what they really should be. So that's mm. that's the heart of what we as activist short sellers uh, do. Well, that is a good note on which to finish. Uh, Carson, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Will. It's been enjoyable. Thank you to Carson Block. If you haven't already, please follow AFI on LinkedIn and sign up to our free newsletter, an essential read for anyone in hedge funds and private markets. That's it for now. Until next time on AFI.